It is a pleasure to be here with you on this uh, beautiful rainy Sunday morning at Westlake Hills. I have known this church and admired this church for many years, and uh, it is a joy for me to be here. It is true uh, what Al told you, and that is that I have flunked retirement. <laughs> I retired at the end of June uh, from Preston Hollow Presbyterian after almost 20 years, and all of a sudden I find myself teaching seminary. My job is uh, made possible by a chair, a, a gift from First Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, and I'm so grateful to them because their vision was to have somebody like me who comes in as one who has been uh, in the parish for a whole ministry and comes in and teaches those who are preparing. I tell people that my job is to uh, teach the students everything I've learned from my mistakes so that they can go and make different ones. And uh, that is turning out to be a great joy, and I, I love Austin Seminary. been involved with it for a long time, and uh, it's a joy now to be here in Austin. And thank you for your kind invitation. I'd like to read, if I may, from the New Testament first and then go back to the Old Testament. First from the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, chapter 6, reading from verse 25. Jesus says, and this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And then back to the Psalms and that wonderful Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have established. What are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals, that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, 
whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, teaching seminary, one of the things that I'm becoming acquainted with again is what it is to pass along what you've learned to others. And so I do try to teach my students those practical things, you know, to to cut down on that list of things that students graduate and they say, they don't teach that in seminary. That's my job, to teach those things. But the other thing, like all educators, and I wonder how many educators there are here. Raise your hand if you're an educator. I see them. Okay, you're there, good, thank you very much. All educators, I think, in, at the heart of things, want to help their students to do one thing most, and that's to think. Thinking, really thinking, is a highly biblical concept. And that's what I want us to think about this morning, is thinking. A number of years ago, there came to the American stage a very popular stage play by Thornton Wilder, Our Town. Many of you have probably read it or seen it in some time in your life. It portrays a small New England village. In the first 13 years of the 20th century, many of you are familiar with that little place. Wilder painted a dramatic and emotional portrait of Grover's Corners, New Hampshire. As the play opens, we experience the simple life of small-town America, complete with the milkman. Do you, anybody remember what a milkman is? You know, the paper boy, the, the, the newspaper editor, the town doctor. And the second act, entitled Love and Marriage, celebrates the wedding of George Gibbs and Emily Webb. The last act takes place in a village cemetery on a windy hilltop where lay the saints of Grover's Corners who have been handed over now to their maker. But there's a fresh grave, and it's Emily's grave because Emily has died in childbirth. And Emily, after her death, is given the gift of a strange blessing. She is told that she can go back and relive any day of her life that she chooses. She can choose the day, and so she chooses, of all other days, her 12th birthday. I wonder what day you would choose in your life. At first, it's exciting to be young again and to be back in Grover's Corners, but then a kind of darkness sets in, for gradually she comes to realize how unaware she had been of the meaning and the wonder of daily life when she was alive. And Emily says this, she says, live people don't understand, do they? We don't have time to look at each other. At the end of the day, as she departs once again from earth, she bids farewell by saying, so all that was going on and we never noticed Oh, earth, you're too wonderful for anyone to realize you. Do human beings ever realize life while they live it? It's 
an important question. I think maybe it's that question that is the reason why Wilder's play has been an American favorite for so long. The question posed by that last act has stayed with us and it's haunted us and it's made us think about our own lives. Do we ever really realize life while we live it? In other words, we fail to think. To really think about our lives. We just heard those soaring words from Psalm 8 in the King James, which is how I learned it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. And then a question as haunting as Emily's. When I consider thy heavens. Did you ever lie under a summer night sky? Some place where you could really see the stars? Have you ever considered the heavens? We did something rather remarkable in the last week. You know, we landed a, a, a human-made object on a comet. Can you imagine that? Did you hear the most amazing thing about that comet? It sings. Did you read this? They found out that in this comet, it, it emits a very, very low-frequency electromagnetic pulse. And in Germany, a laboratory raised those sounds into the audible range. And I brought with me the music of the spheres this morning. Maybe I brought the music of the spheres this morning. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast established, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? Think about it. The psalmist asks, when I consider the vastness of the universe, when I listen to the, the songs of the spheres, I'm driven to ask, who are we that God, the God of all that, should be mindful of us? Listen to this. If you listen to Psalm 8, it says that we consider, that is, we think, And God is mindful. God thinks. That's what the psalmist says. In other words, when we take the time to think, to really think, when we take the time to do what Emily thought was so rare in this world and realize life while we live it, we wonder at the idea to consider that the God of all that is mindful of us in return. God is mindful. We consider You see, God and you in this moment are thinking about each other. 
Psalm 139 tells us that God thinks about you more often than there are grains of sand in the world. It's a poetic image that reminds us that God is always mindful of us and we are unaware until we become mindful of God. So what I want to ask you to think about today is this. I ask you to think to yourself, how mindful am I? Do I realize life as I live it? Do I treasure each day? Or am I so caught up in the routines and the distractions that I end up missing the journey and I fail to consider my life? We stop to use the meaningful biblical term to consider, to contemplate. The psalmist considered the works of God in the stars. In that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to consider the ravens and the lilies of the field. Do you know that the Bible tells us to consider all of 161 times? It's as if the Bible put a big sign in front of us that said, think. And many of those references remind us to take the time to think about the works of God, to think about the days gone by for all of us and the ways in which God was present and powerful in those times, even when we failed to realize it. God has always been faithful. It's a good exercise to really think. St. Ignatius called that exercise seeing God in all things. Brother Lawrence wrote, contemplation, that is thinking, is the pure and loving gaze that finds God everywhere. Another spiritual teacher called it the sacrament of the present moment. A couple of years ago, I was asked to preach at a local synagogue in Dallas. And when I heard the first line of those beautiful Sabbath prayers, prayed just after the sun goes down, it was breathtaking. Do you know how they begin? The first line of the first prayer goes like this. The days pass, the years fly, and we walk sightless amid miracles. Did you hear that? The days pass, the years fly, and we walk sightless amid miracles. How true, if we don't stop to consider, to be mindful, we miss miracles right under our noses. We don't even see them. In his book uh, entitled Living Before God, seminary professor Ben Campbell Johnson warns us of something called life sleep. This is meaningful to me. Life sleep is our amazing and disconcerting capacity to move through life on autopilot. Not really conscious of the passing of each precious moment, missing opportunities, taking even those we love most for granted. Life sleep is that state of affairs in which instead of living a rich and full life, we are lulled by the dry routines that leave us feeling empty and just mildly depressed. In other words, we move through our days, but we are essentially unconscious the whole time. We are functionally asleep. Going to sleep at night is something that we all do, some better, some worse. I sleep better than my wife. I tell her it's minus the sleep of the innocent. (laughs) For some reason, it doesn't go over very well. But sleep is entry into an unconscious state in which we may dream. Images come and go, events and people move in and out of mind, but usually without control on our part. Dreams just happen. 
Ben Campbell Johnson said that life sleep is unique in that we are awake the whole time. We awaken, he writes, arise and perform our morning rituals in an unconscious manner that sets the tone for the day. Going on, he says, our habits of awaking, dressing, going to work, conducting business, living through the day are carried out without our being aware of what we're really seeing, hearing, feeling. When we live this way, we miss the spiritual depth of life. To awaken to this depth might be a great shock to our spiritual nature, and so we are so well rehearsed in sleeping through life that we wouldn't know what to do if we ever woke up. Does any of that sound familiar to you? It does to me. One of the most tragic and yet most subtle facts of life is that so many of us go through the routines of life without any real depth or spiritual awareness. In other words, there's always so much more going on than we're ever aware of, than we ever consider, because we're not mindful. For a number of years, I've done something at weddings that dawned on me one day a number of years ago. And that is, after, a, after one particular wedding, I heard the groom or the bride, I forget which, said to the other, were there many people there I didn't notice? So from that time on, for many years, probably about 30 years, I have had, in the middle of a wedding service, had the bride and the groom turn around, and I tell them, look. Look at these people. You have people here who have come from far and wide, all over the country, sometimes all over the world. They've canceled other things. They've, made other, they've canceled other plans in order to be here with you. You see people who brought you into this world. You see people who have loved you since before you can remember being loved. You see people have joined you along life's journey at points along the way. And I want you to take a picture of what you see with your mind's eye and don't ever forget it because if life ever throws one of those days at you that you wonder how loved you are, you can get out that picture and remember how blessed you are. We need to remember. We need to think. The ancient psalmist says as much. In Psalm 8, he speaks of the creator whose glory exceeds the heavens, who created even the moon and the myriad stars, and yet is mindful of us. The psalmist is saying, in effect, when you stop to consider the vastness of this infinite universe with its billions of galaxies spread over billions of light years of luminous darkness, the fact is that the God of all that loves us and is mindful of us, and that's remarkable. Perhaps it's true to say that mindfulness is even more powerful than love, although it's based on love. It is, after all, possible to love someone without thinking of them. It's what happens in marriages when people have been married long enough to take each other for granted. They don't really think that much about what's really going on with this person they love. To be mindful of each other involves a love that resists distraction. It's the strong refusal to fall into the, mind, the opposite of mindfulness, and that's literally absent-mindedness. It's a love that pays attention, a commitment not just of emotion but will, a love that won't let go of the other. Hold that image in your mind and listen again. What are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals, that you care for them? The greatest wonder in the universe is that God at this moment is mindful of you. 
Isn't it true that our greatest human need may just be to be thought of, to to be understood? Isn't that one of the great needs in today's world? We have a terrible way, you know, of dividing ourselves from others because they're different, they're not like us. We divide the rich from the poor because whichever we are, the other's not like us. We've divided the races under the assumption that they are not like us. At the heart of such divisions is the human desire to be understood, to be thought of and understood deeply enough for understanding to develop. develop. Aren't we all saying in some way, look at me, think about me, open your eyes, look at me from God's point of view. Our human dignity is a divine gift. Justice and righteousness are divine gifts long before they were written in law books. I remember the old spiritual that sang, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. There it is, the human desire to be understood, to be thought about. To love somebody is to understand enough about them to see the world through their eyes, to notice them. To fathom their personhood and their experience enough to sense what it's like to be them. An early Christian mystic said it well, This mystic said, to know all is to love all. If you understood that person who is so difficult to love deeply enough and completely enough, you would find the capacity to love them. Isn't that the way in which God loves us? We are not loved, you and I, because we're perfect. But God loved us while we were yet sinners because God is mindful of us. God, more than any other, sees the world through our eyes. This is the nature, you know, of God's mindfulness. And wasn't Jesus the paragon of mindfulness? His mind was always directed toward others. He was always noticing somebody. Surrounded by the crowd, he stopped to notice that a woman just touched the fringe of his garment in the temple one day with his disciples. He noticed the woman who dropped two little coins in the offering. Nobody else saw that. On the cross, he noticed the plight of a nearby thief who even then was making a place in his heart for God. And in lesser but just as important ways, he calls us to be mindful of one another. I put, I have a favorite quote from George Bernard Shaw, and I'd like you to take it with you today and remember it. George Bernard Shaw said, few people think more than two or three times a year. I have made an international reputation for myself by thinking once or twice a week. (laughs) Isn't that the point? Think. To really think. Once or twice a week. What would happen if you did it once or twice a day? You could be even bigger than George Bernard Shaw. To really think about the people God has called you to love, to stop and consider As you look up into the night sky, the God of all that who considers you, who's thinking about you. If you do that, I think it'll work a miracle. Nobody said it better than Paul. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things.
Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. Amen.